0: Hello, and welcome to Sleeping Instructions, a podcast from Maker Community Inc. in Melbourne, Australia. These podcasts aim to help you sleep. They are semi-educational, because we will simply read through instruction manuals. If you're interested in the subject matter, it's educational. If you are not, it's not. Either way, instruction manuals tend to be boring, and we will just read through them, and you can fall asleep learning something new, or otherwise. If you have been enjoying these podcasts, please consider giving us a review, or sharing with your friends. In this episode, we continue with the Model T Ford Instruction Manual, copyright 1919, by the Ford Motor Company. The Ford Muffler Why is the muffler necessary? The exhaust, as it comes from the engine through the exhaust pipe, would create a constant and distracting noise, were it not for the muffler. From the comparatively small pipe, the exhaust is liberated into the larger chambers of the muffler, where the force of the exhaust is lessened by expansion and discharged out of the muffler with practically no noise. The Ford muffler construction is such that there is very little back pressure of the escaping gases. Consequently, there is nothing to be gained by putting a cutout in the exhaust pipe between the engine and the muffler. How is the muffler disconnected? Disconnect the exhaust pipe from the motor by unscrewing the pack nut and remove the bolts which hold the muffler to the frame. After the muffler has been disconnected, it can be disassembled by removing the nut at the rear end. The running gear. What care should the running gear have? In the first place, it at all times should have proper lubrication. Once in every 30 days, the front and rear axles should be carefully gone over to see that every moving part, such as the bushings in spring connections, spring hangers, steering knuckles, hub bearings are thoroughly lubricated and that all nuts and connections are secured with cotter pins in place. The spring clips which attach the front spring to the frame should be inspected frequently to see that everything is in perfect order. How is the front axle removed? Jack up the front of the car so wheels can be removed. Disconnect the steering gear ball arm from the spindle connecting rod. Disconnect the radius rod ball at the bod joint. And remove two cotter pin bolts from the spring shackle on each side, so detaching the front spring. To disconnect the radius rod from the axle, remove the cotter pinned nuts. To remove the radius rod entirely, take the two bolts out of the ball joint and remove the lower half cap. In case of accident, how is the front axle straightened? Should the axle or spindle become bent, extreme care must be used to straighten the part accurately. Do not heat the forgings as this will untemper the steel, but straighten them cold. If convenient, it will be better to return such parts to the dealer where they may be properly straightened in jigs designed for that purpose. It is very essential that wheels line up properly. The eye is not sufficiently accurate to determine the parts have been properly straightened, and excessive wear of the front tyres will occur if everything is not in perfect alignment. What about the wheels? The wheels should be jacked up periodically and tested, not only for smoothness of running, but for side play as well. If in spinning a front wheel, a sharp click occurs now and then, the wheel is momentarily checked. It is probable that there is a chipped or split ball in the bearing, which should be removed, otherwise it may necessitate the removal of the entire bearing. A wheel in perfect adjustment should, after spinning, come to rest with the tyre valve directly below the hub. Undue wear of the hub bearings is usually caused by a lack of lubrication and excessive friction due to the adjusting cone being screwed up too tight. It is a good plan to clean the bearings frequently and keep the hub well filled with grease. How are the wheels removed? Front wheels. Take off the hubcap, remove the cotter pin and unscrew the castle nut and spindle washer. The adjustable bearing cone can then be taken out and the wheel removed. Care should be taken to see that the cones and lock nuts are replaced on the same spindle from which they were removed. Otherwise, there is a liability of stripping the threads which are left on the left spindle and right, the opposite as you stand facing the car. Rear wheels, they should not be removed unless absolutely necessary, in which case proceed as above. Then, with a wheel puller, remove the wheel from the tapered shaft to which it is locked with a key. In replacing rear wheels, be sure that nut on axle shaft is as tight as possible and cotter pin in place. The hub caps of the rear wheels should be removed occasionally and the lock nuts which hold the hub in place tightened up. If these nuts are allowed to work loose, the resulting play on the hub key may eventually twist off the axle shaft. How does the setting of the front wheels differ from that of the rear wheels? It will be observed that the front wheels are dished, that is, the spokes are given a slight outward flare to enable them to meet side stresses with less rigid resistance, while the spokes of the rear wheels are straight. The front wheels are also placed at an angle That is to say, the distance between the tops of the front wheels is about three inches greater than between the bottoms. This is to give perfect steering qualities and to save wear on the tyres when turning corners. The front wheels should not, however, toe in at the front, at least not more than a quarter of an inch. Lines drawn along the outside of the wheels when the latter are straight in a forward position should be parallel. All wheels should always be kept in proper alignment, otherwise steering will be difficult and tire wear greatly increased. Adjustment can be made by turning the yoke at the left end of the spindle connecting rod to draw the wheels into a parallel position. What about installing roller bearing cups? Whenever it is necessary to install roller bearing cups, either in changing over from ball bearings to roller bearings, or in replacing worn cups, the work should be done by a dealer or garage which has the necessary equipment for this work. In order to avoid excessive wear of the bearings, it is essential that the cups be fitted absolutely true, and this is practically impossible without the use of special equipment. How are the roller bearings installed? First, pack the hub full of clean, good quality cup grease. Take the inner cone with its rollers and pack it with grease, filling all of the space around and between the rollers. Then place the inner cone in the larger cup. Next, drive the dust ring with the felt washer into the inner end of the hub so that it is flush with the end of the hub. Place the wheel carrying the inner bearings with the dust ring on the spindle. The inner core is a 1,000th fit, or in other words, a slip fit on the spindle. It is never necessary to force the cone onto the spindle, as the cups are forced into the hub. Pack the outer or threaded cone and rollers with cup grease, filling all the space between the rollers as was done with the inner cone. The cones are made up in right and left-hand threads to correspond to the threads on the spindles. Care should be taken that a right-hand threaded cone is not forced onto a left-hand threaded spindle. The right-hand thread is on the left-hand side of the car, while the left-hand thread is on the right-hand side of the car. Place the cone on the spindle, running it tight enough so that the wheel seems to bind. Give the wheel a few turns to be sure that all the working parts are in perfect contact. Then back off the cone a quarter to a half turn, which will be sufficient to allow the wheel to revolve freely without end play. To determine if there is end play, grasp the spokes and shake the wheel. Do not mistake loose spindle bushings for loose bearings. Insert a cold chisel between the axle and spindle to take up any play whilst testing the bearings. Next, put on the spindle washer and the nut, drawing the nut to a firm bearing. Make sure that the cone has not been forced out of adjustment. This can be determined by giving the wheel a few turns. Insert the cotter pin, which locks the nut on the spindle. Fill the hub cap with grease and screw it in place on the hub. How often should the bearings be lubricated? Every three or four months, the wheel should be removed, the old grease taken out, and the hubs and bearings thoroughly cleansed with kerosene. Then repack the hub and bearings with clean grease and readjust the bearings. What care do the springs need? The springs should be lubricated frequently with oil or graphite. To do this, pry the leaves apart near the ends and insert the lubricant between them. Whenever a car is given a general overhauling, the springs should be disassembled and the leaves polished with emery cloth, afterwards packing them with graphite when reassembling. Rust can be prevented from accumulating on the springs by painting them, when necessary, with a quick-drying black paint. You will find that these suggestions, if carried out, will not only improve the riding qualities of the car, but prolong the life of the parts as well. Should spring clips be kept tight? Yes. If the spring clips are allowed to work loose, the entire strain is put on the tie bolt which extends through the centre of the spring. This may cause the bolt to be sheared off and allow the frame and body to shift a trifle to one side. It is a good plan to frequently inspect the clips which hold the springs to the frame and see that they are kept tight. What about the steering apparatus? It is exceedingly simple and will need little care, except, of course, proper lubrication. The post gears, which are arranged in the sun and planet form, are located at the top of the post just below the hub of the wheel. By loosening the set screw and unscrewing the cap, after having removed the steering wheel, they may be readily inspected and replenished with grease. To remove the steering wheel, Unscrew the nut on top of the post and drive the wheel off the shaft with a block of wood and a hammer. How is the steering tightened? Should the steering gear become loose, that is, so that a slight movement of the wheel does not produce immediate results, it may be tightened in the following manner. Disconnect the two halves of the ball sockets which surround the ball arm at the lower end of the steering post, and file off the surface until they fit snugly around the ball. If the ball is badly worn, it is best to replace it with a new one. Also, tighten the ball caps at the other ends of the steering gear connecting rod in the same manner. If the bolts in the steering spindle arms appear to be loose, the brass bushings should be replaced with new ones. Excessive play in the front axle may be detected, by grasping one of the front wheels by the spokes and jerking the front axle back and forth. After the car has been in service two or three years, excessive play in the steering gear may make necessary the renewal of the little pinions as well the brass internal gear just underneath the steering wheel spider. It is also advisable to inspect the front spring and the front spring perches occasionally to determine whether or not new bushings are necessary to overcome any excessive vibration. The Ford Lubricating System How does the Ford Lubricating System differ from others? It is simplified, and there are fewer places to oil. Practically all of the parts of the engine and transmission are oiled by the Ford Splash System, from the one big oil reservoir in the crankcase. Cut number 18 shows the principal points of lubrication and specifies when replenishment should be made according to mileage. This chart should be studied carefully and often. It is a good plan to frequently supply all oil cups with the same oil used in the engine, any good light grade lubricating oil, and the dope cups with good grease be sure to see that the commutator is kept freely supplied with oil at all times. Which is the best way to fill the dope cups? When it is advisable to fill dope cup covers, screw them down, refill with grease and repeat the operation two or three times. Always open oil cups by turning to the right, as this keeps tightening rather than loosening them. Occasionally, remove front wheels and supply dope to wearing surface. A drop of oil now and then in the crank handle bearing is necessary, also on the fan belt pulleys and shaft. The sails, drive shaft and universal joint are supplied with lubricant when the car leaves the factory, but it is well to examine and oil them frequently. What kind of oil should be used? We recommend only medium-light, high-grade gas engine oil for use in the Model T motor. A medium-light grade of oil is preferred, as it will naturally reach the bearings with greater ease, and consequently less heat will develop on account of friction. The oil should, however, have sufficient body so that pressure between the two bearing surfaces will not force the oil out, and allow the metal to come in actual contact. Heavy and inferior oils have a tendency to carbonise quickly. Also gum up the piston rings, valve stems and bearings. In cold weather, a light grade of oil having a low cold test is absolutely necessary for the proper lubrication of the car. Graphite should not be used as a lubricant in the engine or the transmission, as it will have a tendency to short-circuit the magneto. How often should oil be drained from the crankcase? It is advisable to clean out the crankcase by draining off the dirty oil when the new car has been driven 350 miles. Thereafter, it will only be necessary to repeat this operation about every 750 miles. Remove the plug underneath the flywheel casing and drain off the oil. Replace the plug and pour in a gallon of kerosene oil through the breather pipe. Turn the engine over 15 or 20 times so that the splash from the kerosene oil will thoroughly cleanse the engine. Remove the crankcase plug and drain off the kerosene oil. It is of vital importance that all the kerosene oil be removed from the depressions in the crankcase.
1: To do this,
0: put about a quart of lubricating oil into the motor and turn the engine over several times. Then remove the crankcase plug and drain off the flushing oil. Then replace the plug and refill with fresh oil. How often should the commutator be oiled? Keeping the commutator well oiled is a matter of far greater importance than many drivers believe, and it is necessary in order to have a smooth operating engine. Don't be afraid to put a little oil into the commutator every other day, at least every two hundred miles. Remember that the commutator roller revolves very rapidly and without sufficient lubrication the parts soon become badly worn. When in this condition perfect contact between the roller and the four contact points is impossible. And as a result, the engine is apt to misfire when running at a good rate of speed. What about lubricating the differential? Do not make the mistake of putting too much grease in the differential housing. The housing should not be more than one third full. The differential is supplied with the required amount of lubricant when the car leaves the factory. The oil plug should be removed about every 1000 miles, and more grease added if necessary. If a fluid grease is used, the level should be approximately one and a half inches below the oil hole. Care of the tyres. How are the Ford tyres removed? First, jack up the wheel clear of the road. The valve cap should be unscrewed, the lock nut removed and the valve stem pushed into the tyre until its head is flushed with the rim. This done, loosen up the head of the shaw in the clinch of the rim by working and pushing with the hands. Then insert one of the tyre irons or levers under the beads. The tyre iron should be pushed in just enough to get a good hold on the underside of the bead, but not as far as to pinch the inner tube between the rim and the tool. A second iron should be inserted in the same fashion, some seven or eight inches from the first, and the third tool the same distance from the second. As a clincher tyre must be pried, wet the clinch Three levers will come in handy in case of a one-man job, and the knee of the driver can be used to good advantage to hold down one lever while the other two are being manipulated in working the shoe clear of the rim. After freeing a length of the head from the clinch, the entire outer edge of the casing may be readily detached with the hands and the damaged inner tube removed and patched, or a spare tube inserted. Always use printly of soapstone in replacing an inner tube. How are casing is repaired? Should the casing be cut so there is a danger of the inner tube being blown through it, a temporary repair can be made by cementing a canvas patch on the inside of the casing. Before applying the patch, the part of the casing affected should be cleared with gasoline and when dry Rubber cement applied to both casing and patch, this will answer as an emergency repair, but the casing should be vulcanized at the first opportunity to prolong the life of the tire casings. Any small cuts in the tread should be filled with patching cement, and a specially prepared plastic sold by the tire companies. How may tire expense be reduced? Tire cost constitutes one of the most important items in the running expenses of an automobile. To get the most service at the least expense, the tires should be inspected frequently and all small cuts or holes properly sealed or repaired, thus preventing dirt and water working in between the rubber tread and the fabric, causing blisters or sand boils. Tyres should never be run partially deflated as the sidewalls are unduly bent and the fabric is subject to stresses which cause what is known as rim cutting. The chances of getting a puncture will be greatly reduced by keeping your tyres properly inflated as hard tyre exposes much less surface to the road than a soft tyre and also deflects sharp objects that will penetrate a soft tyre. Running a tyre flat, even for a short distance, is sure to be costly. Better run on the rim very slowly and carefully, rather than on a flat tyre. Remember that fast driving and skidding shortens the life of the tyres. Avoid locking the wheels with the brakes. No tyre will stand the strain of being dragged over the pavement in this fashion. Avoid running in streetcar tracks in ruts or bumping the side of the tyre against a curbing, The wheel rims should be painted each season and kept free from rust. When a car is idle for any appreciable length of time, it should be jacked up to take the load off the tyres. If the car is laid up for many months, it is best to remove the tyres and wrap up the outer casings and inner tubes separately and store them in a dark room not exposed to extreme temperatures. Remove oil or grease from the tires with gasoline. Remember that heat, light and oil are three natural enemies of rubber. How is a puncture in the inner tube repaired? After locating the puncture, carefully clean the rubber around the link with benzene or gasoline, then roughen the surface with sandpaper to give a hold for the cement. Apply the cement to both patch and tube, allowing it to dry for about five minutes, repeating the application twice with like intervals between for drying. When the cement is dry and sticky, press the patch against the tube firmly and thoroughly to remove all air bubbles beneath it and ensure proper adherence to the surface. Then spread some soapstone or talc powder over the repair, so as to prevent the tube sticking to the casing. Before the tube is put back into the casing, plenty of talc powder should be sprinkled into the latter. A cement patch is not usually permanent, and the tube should be vulcanised as soon as possible. In replacing the tyre on the rim, be very careful not to pinch the tube. Points on maintenance What is the proper way to wash the car? Always use cold or lukewarm water, never hot water. If a hose is used, don't turn on the water at full force as this drives the dirt into the varnish and injures the finish. After the surplus mud and grime have been washed off, take a sponge and clean the body and running gear with a tepid solution of water and ivory or linseed oil soap. Rinse off with cold water, then rub dry and polish the body with a chamois skin. A body or furniture polish of good quality may be used to add lustre to the car. Grease on the running gear may be removed with a gasoline soaked sponge or rag. The nickelled parts may be polished with any good metal polish. What care does the top need? When putting the top down, be careful in folding to see that the fabric is not pinched between the bow spaces, as they will chafe a hole through the top very quickly. Applying a good top dressing will greatly improve the appearance of an old top. What should be done when the car is stored? Drain the water from the radiator and then put in about a quarter of denatured alcohol to prevent freezing of any water that may possibly remain. Remove the cylinder head and clean out any carbon deposits in the combustion chamber. Draw off all the gasoline. Drain the dirty oil from the crankcase and cleanse the engine with kerosene, as directed in a previous answer. Refill the crankcase with fresh oil and revolve the engine enough to cover the different parts with oil remove the tyres and store them away, wash up the car and if possible cover the body with a sheet of muslin to protect the finish. What attention do the electric headlights require? Very little. When the cars leave our factory the lamps are properly focused and unless the bulb burns out there should be no occasion for removing the door as there is nothing to get out of order. Should the door be removed for any reason, care should be exercised not to touch the silver plated reflector or the bulb with anything but a soft, clean rag, preferably flannel. To focus the lamps, turn the adjusting screw in the back of the lamp in either direction until the desired focus is attained. The Ford Model T one ton truck. To the instructions relative to the car, apply to the truck. The answers pertaining to the car are applicable to the truck, with the exceptions of numbers 79, 80 and 81. How are the rear axle and differential disassembled? With the universal joint disconnected, remove the bolt in the front end of the radius rods and the cap screws which hold the drive shaft tube to the inner rear axle housing. Then remove the rear axle housing cap. Also the bolts which hold the two halves of the differential housing together. With the differential exposed to view, the manner of disassembling it will be apparent. Care must be exercised to get every part back in its correct position when reassembling. Being sure to use new paper liners. How is the worm removed? To remove the worm, drive out the pins which hold the coupling to the worm and the drive shaft then remove the felt washer the roller bearing sleeve and the roller bearings by slipping them over the coupling drive the coupling off from the drive shaft and then force the worm from the coupling removing the worm nut will permit the removal of the retaining washer thrust bearing and rear worm roller bearing In reassembling, be sure that the pin which holds the retaining washer stationary is in place. How is the differential gear removed from the shaft? The differential gear is fastened to the inner end of the rear axle shaft by means of splines and is held in position by a ring which is in two halves and fits in a groove in the rear axle shaft. To remove the gear, force it down on the shaft, that is, away from the end to which it is fastened. Drive out the two halves of the ring in the groove in the shaft with a screwdriver or chisel and force the gear off the end of the shaft. What about lubricating the rear axle? Extreme care must be used in lubricating the differential. An A1 Heavy fluid or semi-fluid oil such as Mobil Oil C or Whittlemore's Worm Gear Protective should be used and carried at a level with the upper oil plug. The differential is supplied with the required amount of lubricant when the truck leaves the factory and the supply should be maintained by replenishments as required. After running the truck about 500 miles, the oil should be drained off by removing the lower oil plug and the differential filled with fresh lubricant. This operation should be repeated at approximately 1000 miles and after that whenever necessary. The rear axle outer roller bearings are lubricated by means of dope cups. These cups should be kept filled with a good grade of grease and given a full turn every 100 miles. Before putting the truck back in service after the rear axle has been taken down, fill the differential with oil, jack up the axle and run it for 5 or 10 minutes to ensure proper lubrication of all bearings. The Ford starting and lighting system. Of what does the starting and lighting system consist? The starting and lighting system is of the two unit type and consists of the starting motor, generator, storage battery, ammeter and lights, together with the necessary wiring and connections. Where is the starter located? The starting motor is mounted on the left hand side of the engine and bolted to the transmission cover. When in operation, the pinion on the Bendix drive shaft engages with the teeth on the flywheel. What if the engine fails to start? If the starting motor is turning the crankshaft over and the engine fails to start, the trouble is not in the starting system. What if the engine fails to start? If the starting motor is turning the crankshaft over and the engine fails to start, the trouble is not in the starting system. In this event, release the button at once so as not to unnecessarily discharge the battery and inspect the carburettor and ignition system to determine the trouble. What if the starting motor fails to act? If the starting motor fails to act, after pushing the button, first inspect the terminal on the starting motor, the two terminals on the battery and the two terminals on the starting switch, making sure all of the connections are tight. Then examine the wiring for a break in the insulation that would cause a short circuit. If the wiring connections are OK and the starting motor fails to act, test the battery or the hydrometer. If the hydrometer reading is less than 1.225, the trouble is no doubt due to a weak or discharged battery. What if the driver steps on the starting button when the engine is running? Should the driver accidentally step on the starting wheel while the engine is running, no harm will result. The pinion merely touches the revolving flywheel car once
1: and immediately
0: routes with the threaded shaft out of contact with the flywheel, in the same manner as when it has been disengaged by the engine's starting. How is the generator operated? The generator is mounted on the right hand side of the engine and bolted to the cylinder front end cover. It is operated by the pinion on the amateur shaft engaging with the large time gear. The charging rate of the generator is set as to cut in at engine speeds corresponding to 10 miles per hour in high speed and reaches a maximum charging rate at 20 miles per hour. At higher speeds, the charge will taper off which is a settled characteristics of a generator. This operation of cutting in and cutting out at suitable speeds is accomplished by the cutout, which is mounted on the generator. This cutout is set properly at the factory and should not, under any circumstances, be tampered with. What about oiling? The starting motor is lubricated by the Ford Splash system, the same as the engine and transmission. The generator is lubricated by a splash of oil from the time gears. In addition, an oil cup is located at the end of the generator housing and a few drops of oil should be applied occasionally. What should be done when repairing the ignition? The introduction of a battery current into the magneto will discharge the magnets and whether working on the ignition system or wiring Do not fail to disconnect the positive wire from the battery. The end of this wire should be wound with tape to prevent it coming in contact with the terminal again. How does the ammeter operate? The ammeter is located on the instrument board. This indicator registers charge when the battery generator is charging the battery and discharge when the lights are burning and the engine not running above 10 miles per hour. At an engine speed of 15 miles per hour or more, the ammeter should show a reading of from 10 to 12.
1: If the engine
0: is running above 15 miles per hour and the ammeter does not show a proper reading, first inspect the terminal posts on the ammeter, making sure the connections are tight. Then, disconnect the wire from the terminal on the generator and, with the engine running at a moderate speed, take a pair of pliers or a screwdriver and short circuit the terminal stud on the generator to the generator housing. If the generator is OK, a good live spark will be noted. Do not run the engine any longer than is necessary with the terminal wire disconnected. Next, inspect the wiring from the generator through the ammeter to the battery, for a break in the insulation that would result in a short circuit. If the trouble is not located, then remove the dust cap from the end of the generator, and thoroughly chain the generator commutator, using for this work a fine grade of sandpaper which has been slightly oiled. With the motor running, hold the sandpaper against the commutator with the fingers, until all dirt has been removed and a bright surface attained. How are the lights operated? The lighting system consists of two headlights and a tail light operated by a combination lighting and ignition switch located on the instrument board. The headlamp bulbs are of six to eight volt, double filament type. The major filament is 18 candle power, and the minor filament is two and three-quarter candle power. The small bulb used in the tail light is of six to eight volt, single contact, two candle power type. All of the lamps are connected in parallel so that the burning out or removal of any one of them will not affect the other. Current for the lamps is supplied by the battery. Do not connect the lights to the magneto as it will result in burning out of the bulbs and might discharge the magnets. Cut number 23 shows the different circuits and the course of the current. What about repairing the starter and the generator? If either the starter or generator fails to give proper service, the owner should at once consult an authorized Ford dealer. Owners should not attempt to repair or adjust the mechanism of the starter and generator. How is the starter removed? When removing the starter to replace transmission bands, or for any other reason, first remove the engine pan on the left hand side of the engine, and with a screwdriver, remove the four screws holding the shaft cover to the transmission cover. Upon removing the cover and the gasket, turn the Bendix drive shaft around so that the set screw on the end of the shaft is at the top. Immediately under the set screw is placed a lockwood washer designed with lips or extensions opposite each other. One of these is turned against the collar and the other is turned up against the side of the screw head. Bend back the lip which has been forced against the screw and remove the set screw. As the lock washer will no doubt be broken or weakened in removing the starter, a new one must be used when replacing it. Next, pull the Bendix assembly out of the housing, being careful that the small key is not misplaced or lost. Remove the four screws which hold the starter housing to the transmission cover and pull out the starter, taking the same down through the chassis. This is why it was necessary to remove the engine pan. Extreme care should be used in removing the Bendix drive and other parts that none are misplaced nor lost and that they are replaced in their former position. In replacing the starter, be sure that the terminal connection is placed at the top. If the car is to be operated with the starter removed, be sure to put the transmission cover plates in position. These plates may be obtained from the nearest dealer. How is the Bendix drive assembled to the starting motor? When assembling the Bendix drive to the starting motor shaft, care must be used to see that the stop nut or bearing, which enters the mounting bracket on the starting motor, is not too tight. Also that the bearing is in proper alignment with the bracket. The bearing should be oiled and then fitted so it can be easily turned with the fingers. If the bearing is too tight, it should be dressed down with an oil stone. Too tight a fit will cause the bearing to freeze to the bracket, resulting in serious damage to the starter. How is the generator removed? If it is found necessary to remove the generator, first take out the three cap screws holding it to the front end cover and by placing the point of a screwdriver between the generator and the front end cover, the generator may be forced off the engine assembly. Always start at the top of the generator and force it backwards and downwards at the same time. Plates may be obtained from the nearest dealer to place over the time gear if the car is to be operated with the generator removed. What should be done when replacing the generator? When installing the generator, the drive pinion must be properly meshed with the large time gear. The generator bracket, that is, the section to which the generator is bolted, is separate from the cylinder block, and the meshing of the generator driving pinion with the large time gear can be regulated by use of one or more paper gaskets between the bracket and the cylinder block. The bracket should rest lightly on the crankcase gasket and line up with the face of the time gear case. If these gears are meshed too tightly a humming noise will result and the generator shaft will be thrown out of alignment. If for any reason the engine is run with the generator disconnected from the battery as on a block test or when the battery has been removed for repair or recharging. Be sure that the generator is grounded by running a wire from the terminal on the generator to one of the dust cover screws in the yoke. Two strands of shipping tag wire may be used for this purpose. Be sure that the connections at both ends of the wire are tight. Failure to do this when running the engine with the generator disconnected from the battery will result in serious injury to the generator. Never ground the generator through the cutout. What type of battery is used? The Ford starting system uses a six volt, three cell battery. How are hydrometer readings taken? Hydrometer readings should be taken about every two weeks to make sure that the generator is keeping the battery charged. To take a hydrometer reading, remove the filling plugs Next, insert the hydrometer syringe in the filler tube and draw up enough of the solution to float the glass tube inside the instrument. The reading of the scale at the surface of the liquid gives the strength of the solution. Be sure to return the electrolyte to the cell from which it was taken. Following is a list of the readings with their indications. The second readings apply to batteries used in tropical climates where water never freezes. Readings of 1.275, 1.20, or more indicate a fully charged battery. Readings of less than 1.225, 1.13, but more than 1.15, 1.08, indicate complete discharge. Hydrometer tests taken immediately after filling with water and before it has become thoroughly mixed with electrolyte, will not show the correct condition of the battery. If the hydrometer reading shows the battery less than one half charged, it should be taken to the nearest authorized battery service station for recharging. Continued operation in a less than half charged condition is injurious to the battery somewhat, as running on a soft or deflated tire is injurious to the tire. Before replacing the battery, the cause of the discharge condition should be removed. It may be due to leaks or grounds in the car wiring, or to the electrical system having gotten out of adjustment, so that the battery is not kept supplied with the proper amount of current from the generator. If the reading in one cell is more than 50 points different from the other, it indicates that the cell is not in good order and the battery should be taken to a skilled serviceman for attention. When should water be added to the battery? Add nothing but pure water to the cells and do it often enough to keep the plates covered at all time. The solution, electrolyte, should be maintained at a level with the bottom of the filling tube. Distilled water, melted artificial ice, and rain water, if obtained in the open country, from a clean slate or shingle-covered roof are generally satisfactory. All water for battery use should be kept in clean covered vessels of glass, china, earthenware, rubber or lead. In cold weather, add only immediately before running the engine so that the charging will mix the water and electrolyte and avoid freezing. If for any reason it is necessary to add acid the battery should be taken to an authorised service station. What care should be given to the filling plugs and connections? Keep the filling plugs and connections tight and the top of the battery clean. Wiping the battery with a rag with a moistened with ammonia will counteract the effect of any of the solution which may be on the outside of the battery. A coating of heavy oil or Vaseline will protect the connectors from corrosion. Keep the battery firmly secured in position. If clamps are loose, the battery will shift about in the compartment and will result in loose connections, broken cells and other trouble. If repairs are necessary, or if the car is to be laid up for the winter, take the battery to a skilled serviceman for proper attention and storage. Do not entrust the battery to inexperienced or unskilled hands. Summary of Engine Trouble and Their Causes Engine fails to start 1. Gas mixture too lean 2. Water in gasoline 3. Vibrators adjusted too close 4. Water or congealed oil in commutator 5. Magneto contacts points obstructed with foreign matter 6. Gasoline supply shut off 7. Carburettor frozen, in zero weather. 8. Water frozen in gasoline tank sediment bulb. 9. Coil switched off. Engine lacks power and runs irregularly, at low speeds. 1. Poor compression, account for leaky valves. 2. Gas mixture too rich or too lean. 3. Spark plugs dirty. 4. Coil vibrator improperly adjusted 5. Air leak in intake manifold 6. Weak exhaust valve spring 7. Too great clearance between valve stem and pushrod 8. Too close gap between spark plug points Engine lacks power and runs irregularly at high speeds 1. Commutator in contact imperfect 2. Weak valve spring, three, too much gap in spark plug, four, imperfect gas mixture, five, vibrator points dirty or burned. Engine stops suddenly. One, gasoline tank empty, two, water in gasoline, three, flooded carburetor, four, dirt in carburetor or feed pipe, five. Magneto wire loose at either terminal. Six. Magneto contact point obstructed. Seven. Overheated. Account for lack of oil or water. Eight. Gas mixture too lean. Engine overheats. One. Lack of water. Two. Lack of oil. Three. Fan belt torn loose or slipping. Four carbon deposit in combustion chamber. 5. Spark retarded too far. 6. Gas mixture too rich. 7. Water circulation retarded by sediment in radiator. 8. Dirty spark plugs. Engine knocks. 1. Carbon deposit on piston heads. 2. Loose connecting rod bearing. 3. Loose crankshaft bearing. 4. Spark advanced too far. 5. Engine overheated. This concludes our reading of the Ford Manual for Owners and Operators of Ford Cars and Trucks. Copyright 1919. Thank you for listening to Sleeping Instructions, a podcast by Make a Community. Join us again when we will be reading Sleeping Instructions for another manual. Good night.